Good evening, ladies. What a pleasure it is to be here this evening, and what an absolute shock it is to see all of you. Because as I was getting ready to begin the trip from Long Island, my mother's house, to Brooklyn, um, I started listening to the tornado watch that's uh, taking over parts of uh, New Jersey, and uh, they're predicting a terrible storm. I guess nobody heard about it. That's why you all came. <laughs> but uh, and I said, my gosh, who's going to come out on a night like this, you know? And uh, to see so many people here who obviously don't listen to the radio is just, <laughs> just absolutely inspiring to see how you're totally cut off from the outside world. Um, I have to tell you a story that has nothing to do with what I'm speaking about this evening. Nothing whatsoever. But I'm speaking tomorrow in a school, and the principal said, I, uh, I was the adult in Camp Sternberg when you spoke there 11 years ago. And, uh, you know, I remember what you told the kids, and I remember some advice you gave me personally, and I have to tell you this one story. You were talking to the counselors about dating. And uh, this one girl asked a question. She said, okay. You know, you go out with a guy, he's a nice guy, and it seems like it's nice, and everything's fine, you know. But how do you know the next guy you all go out with won't be better? So I said, call me when you're 40. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> so the girl calls up this woman. She's 34. She calls her up, and she says, I'm engaged. This is unbelievable, you know. I, I really, you know, happy to hear that. What, what you know, what happened? Says, I, I was set up with this guy, a really nice guy, divorced with two kids. And I said, uh, I'm only 34. I don't have to marry a divorced guy with two kids. Says, call me back when I'm 40. She says. <laughs> And then she remembered that I said that to her in Camp Starbuck. And she says, oh my gosh. Not only that, I went out with this guy when I was 21. And I turned him down, and he got married, and he got divorced, and now I'm going out with him again. Do I have to wait till I'm 40? And that's why she decided to get engaged. Yes, Robert Orlovsky's influence is everywhere. <laughs> it is so incredibly frightening when I realize that I meet people from all around the world who, who have listened to my tapes, my CDs, my <coughs> recordings, you know, TorahAnytime.com, you know, whatever it might be. And I say something that people take so incredibly to heart. And sometimes it becomes a life-changing experience, which to me is absolutely amazing. I was giving a shirim at Social Sherman Harnof 20 years ago maybe longer, and, um, and this woman calls me up and says, you know, we enclosed our mirpreset, our porch, and somebody ratted on us to the city. So I spoke to somebody, and he says, I can arrange it. I can arrange it, but you're going to have to delay the court thing. He says, how do you do it? He says, you go to a travel agent, you get a phony ticket, they'll give you a ticket, and you show them that I'm leaving for Kutzlaritz. And so I, I can't come to court. So my husband told me the story. So I said, what are you going to do? He says, but didn't you just tell? I happened to be up to Emmes in Masil Shasharm in Parakut Aleph. He goes, we can't do that, he said. That's what you just learned in your Masil Shasharm shir. It's not Emmes. I said, so what are you going to do? He goes, if they tear down our porch, they tear down our porch. I said, but you're going to lose all the money. He goes, yep. I was like... You don't have to take everything I say so seriously. <laughs> no, they said, no. You know, and, and it was such a Musa scale, you know. Uh, you know, I give out advice. If only I was as sincere as the people who I'm talking to, you know. As Groucho Marx once said, the most important thing is sincerity. Once you can fake that, the rest is easy. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, uh, so I'm here this evening, and I'm so happy to see how many people came out. And uh, for those of you in uh, television land, you can't see, but there must be, I don't know, eight, nine hundred people here. In the <laughs> <laughs> That's because each one is worth at least a hundred. Anyway, 
<laughs> Suddenly that doesn't sound so good, does it? Anyway, <laughs> I feel like uh, as many votes as Jeb Bush got. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, be that as it may, um, I, uh, I wanted to uh, deal with a topic, which as somebody said to me when I came in, happy Motsi Shushan Purim Katan. Well, that's a mouthful. <laughs> As you know, it is uh, it was just Shushan Purim Cotton, which, again, is not as meaningful for those of you here in America as it is for those of us in Yushalayim, because we keep Shushan Purim. So Shushan Purim Cotton is even more significant than just regular Purim Cotton. Yeah? It basically means that if it wasn't for the fact that we have to have... Uh, Pesach come out in the springtime, this would have been Purim. We would have been recovering from Purim, and it would have been quite a party, let me tell you. I can tell already. Um, in general, whenever Purim comes out after, you know, a leap year, you know, and you have an extra month added in, so, you know, yeshiva guys are even more uh, excited for the uh, festivities than they are usually. So uh, it really leads to a particularly festive time and uh, one that I lock myself in my room and wait for it to be over because somehow Purim has taken on a whole different experience. Everything's taken on a different experience, you know? Um, I'm married almost 35 years. And I remember when I walked down to my bedeckin, to my wife's bedeckin, and... Um, uh, I can't imagine anything more poignant. You haven't seen your kala for a week. You're being led down by your father and your father-in-law, each one pulling in a different direction. <laughs> and um, and you're, you're coming down with your friends, and there's your kala, you know, and you go to see her, and you cover over the veil. and it, It's something so dramatic. I've been to Hasanas where that's not enough anymore. So he has to do a dance, <laughs> gives her a rose... You know, pull a rabbit out of a hat. You know, we got to do something, make it a little more exciting. It's not, it's not exciting enough. You know, we have to try to up it up. So I remember when I used to, you know, be a kid, and we'd go to Chris and Megillah. So all the kids had these little groggers. Those little party groggers. You ever see those? They still have them. Now you go to Chris and Megillah. You know, and there are air horns, you know, and cap guns, and, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, missiles, you know, <laughs> explosives going. A guy has one of these gigantic wooden groggers, grog, 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 you know. Halfway through the laning, you don't care about humming, you want to kill that kid, you know. <laughs> Sidebar, interesting story. Uh, I was at a chasana once where somebody had a really bad idea. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea, but it was a really bad idea. They put out a package of sparklers on every table. So when the chasana kala came in, everyone lit the sparklers and they dimmed the lights. The chasana kala came in and at every table they were all waving the sparklers. Beautiful, right? You know what happens when a sparkler goes out? It emits this acrid smoke. The saxophone player was standing outside playing because he couldn't breathe. <laughs> the room is filled with this smoke. And I was like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> so I go to a small shore with all these cap guns. You know, the smoke fills the room and the guy's laning is coughing. You know, it's like, I feel like, you know, a lot of what Purim was has been taken away. Shalach Monas used to be something so cute. You baked some cakes. You made a few things. We never had a theme. Since when do you need a theme? My kids go crazy. What's the theme? I said, Purim. How about we make a Purim theme? We give like hamantashen, you know, and some wine. You know, oh no, you need a theme, you know. Uh, we go through colors. Everything has to be green, everything has to be red, everything has to be blue, you know. Uh, Shushan Purim comes out on Friday, you know. So one year they did Black Friday. <laughs> everything was black. It was 
special. Anyway, <laughs> so everything has the themes and the shachmanis, you know, we get this, and it just becomes impossible. You know, there's no way to possibly keep this up. You know, uh, I had a neighbor once send me like the Mishkan made out of chocolate, you know, and everything was painted. There was a little movable kalim and stuff, you know. You know, and I was like, this is great. And I took a bite. He almost died, you know. <laughs> Why would you send a shalachmanis that's not meant to be eaten, you know? But, uh, you know, it's taken on a whole different thing. But that's not what I want to speak about this evening when I speak about all of my complaints. I can't afford therapy, so I work my problems out in public, you know. <laughs> uh, and that is the concept of Purim costumes. Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Purim costumes. My son was three years old. Now he couldn't be, he didn't have his haircut yet. My son was two years old. He was going off the gun. And they said, please send him in a costume. So my son is two years old. So my wife took like a red jogging suit. She thought it looked regal, you know. <laughs> took an apron, tied it around his neck, looked like a cape. Made a little crown out of aluminum foil, put it on his head. Put on some makeup, you know, a beard, mustache. Mordechai Yehudi. I think we made him with a shavit or something, you know. Yeah. Mordechai Yehudi. He goes outside to wait for the little van. And a van pulls up filled with extras from a Hollywood uh, costume drama. <laughs> Everybody has professional costumes. Everybody You have to see this kid, his whole face just collapse down the go. <gasps> you know, he's still traumatized to this day, you know. So when they came home, he says, oh, what were the costumes? Oh, this one was this, and this one was that, and that. He goes, and my wife says to him, you were Mordechai Yehudi. He goes, no, no, Yitzi was Mordechai Yehudi. He said, well, who are you? I was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the costumes have come in. Now, this becomes even more fun for the assembled, because it becomes the big question, what about not little girls, Little girls. You know, it's so interesting. You know, I, I will often ask an audience, who wants to get married more, boys or girls? You know? And everybody will always say girls, you know? And one time I, I asked this question and someone says, a little boy on Purim almost never dresses up as a chassan. <laughs> How interesting, you know? Women dress up as colors, they dress up as princesses. They dress up as, uh, you know, all kind of Esther and, you know, wonderful things, right? You know. And then you start to get older, and the question is, should you wear a costume or not? Is it a breach of sneeze? Now, I know you girls almost never get to hear any talks on sneeze, so I like to try to slip in the idea <laughs> from time to time. But, uh, you know, is it a problem? Well, I am not a posek. I will just say the following, that... You know, if you're going to wear a costume uh, that is going to draw attention to you, then one might say that is not really the concept of being a tsanua, where nobody notices me if I'm dressing in a way particularly for people to dress. No. Now, I'm not saying everything. For example, if you want to go as a gigantic teddy bear in an entire outfit, I, I assume that's okay, you know. Um, I had this uh, girl come to my house. And she walks in and grabs my hand and says, hey, how you doing? I was like, that's you in there? It was a guy. And he made a much better looking girl, which was kind of scary. And I had a girl at my house and she's just staring at him. And finally she says, where did you get that skirt? <laughs> you know. So sometimes you see the reverse, where a girl will dress up like a guy, you know what I mean? And this happened when I was in Chavetz Chaim, and a guy came with his sister. She was dressed as a guy, and the mashkiach or Kinnarik put out his hand. Yeah, right. Anyway, <laughs> let's just leave that one hanging, because, you know, sometimes I tell stories. People say, what happened? I said, it's a Litvishim. I said, it has no ending. Chassidish <laughs> stories have endings. Litvishim, I said, no. Anyway, but... Uh, I have to tell you this one story. <laughs> there is a woman in my neighborhood who's a very nice woman, very Tamimus Dick, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and of course, she would never do something that was not Sanua, but she thought it would be cute, you know, dressed up like a, like a rabbit. 
She got little rabbit ears. <laughs> and she put on a little rabbit thing and put a little tail. <laughs> we had to explain to her why that's not appropriate. She thought that a more minimalist outfit I couldn't possibly hope for, you know? Not realizing the possible implications to people who grew up in America in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Anyway, the people who are laughing, if you want to, you can explain it to the other people, and if not, it's just fine. That's fine. I don't need to damage everybody I come in contact with. <laughs> it's just, my point is that you just never know. But if you are looking for an outfit, a married couple came to our house with just the best outfit. If you paid attention last week's parasha, they came dressed as Kohanim. Kohanim wear mechnasayim, and then a ksoynis, which is basically a long dress that the sleeves come all the way down, the neck comes all the way up, and it goes all the way down to your ankles. Yeah, that's a ksoynis, with a belt wrapped around it and a turban. And both of them were dressed as Kohanim. And they were both carrying an arum. It was made out of cardboard, and it was spray-painted uh, gold, and it had prove him on top. And they come in to Kohanim, and they set down the Aron, and they take it out and bring out their Shalachmanas. <laughs> and when you give them Shalachmanas, they put it back in, and they cover it up, and off they go, you know? That stays with me to this day. It had to be 25 years ago. But anyway, so... Um, uh, so it's a, it's a whole issue. But this minog of, of costumes obviously is something that is significant. Every minog that the Jewish people have is significant. And one, uh, we have a concept, minog kedinhu, that if there's a Jewish custom, as Noah Weinberg once said, we Jews have been accused of everything except being stupid. So if we do something, there has to be a very good reason for it. And every food that we eat on a yuntif, everything that's associated with it, there's a reason for it, right? The fact that we eat a hamantash, or some people are knowing to eat kreplach, or some people are knowing to eat chalupches, which are stuffed cabbage if you come from an assimilated background like myself. Yeah? First time my wife said, oh, look, chalupches. I was like, where? What are Cholupches, you know. And her, her father was Hungarian. Cholupches, you know. Stuffed cabbage we had. Anyway, I'm assimilated. What can I do? I, to this day, I can't drink seltzer. It's an embarrassment at Jewish gatherings and herring. People are like pushing herring and seltzer on me. I'm like, you know, have a piece of cake. Thank you very much. And some Coke Zero. This is, should not be taken as an advertisement or an endorsement. This is strictly for medical purposes for the caffeine. Anyway, so, um, um, so when, you, uh, when you have this concept of costumes, there's obviously costumes. Now, what, what does a costume do? A costume basically hides who you are, right? And so whether it's a kreplach, which hides the meat, or whether it's a hamantash, which hides the filling, which in Israel is a very good thing, because the hamantash in there are almost always mun, which is poppy seed. I don't really believe that's what they ate in the midbar for 40 years. They ate prune hamantashen, the way that I grew up in America. You can't get prune hamantashen in Israel. It was... Un- unbelievable, yeah. Um, Rabbi Reisman's son was in my shir, and I complained about this one year, and I received an entire box of Reisman's prune hamantaschen, which I have kept in the freezer to this day, and I <laughs> take them out one at a time. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody once said, "There's no Jewish food in Israel." You know, it's all Arab food. You know. You can't you can't get can't get kreplach except on the holidays. There's no black cherry soda, you know what I mean? It's like all the things that Jews eat, you know, can't find it. It's a culture shock, you know. But we don't have to drain the swamps, so it's not so bad. 
I remember when I first moved there and the ice cream man came around. I went out to buy ices. I said, do you have any cherry? No. I said, do you have any lemon? No. Uh, what do you have? Sabra uh, and Rimon. I said, we are not in Kansas anymore, Toto. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so okay, so it's hidden. The chalupture, uh, the, the mixture is hidden inside of the cabbage. A- everything is hidden because Purim is hidden. Megillas Esther is Megale eta Hester, right? It's hidden. Haste Aster Panai. I will hide my face from them. Kashbarach was wearing a mask. It's hidden. Yeah? So, let's get a, uh, let's get the story, right? And an unusual place to look for Purim. Um, Yehuda stands up to the evil Tzafnas Paneach, the viceroy of the king. And he says, how could you do this? And you have no heart and you're going to kill my elderly father. And how could you be so cruel? And the next thing and take me as a slave instead. And, and he just goes on and on and on until finally Yosef breaks down. And he reveals himself to his brothers who did not know until that moment that he was Yosef. Even though Egyptians are black because they're from Ham. And Yosef was Semitic. And uh, they saw he did and knew things that only somebody from the family could possibly have known. But they didn't recognize him because he had a beard. I know a lot of people, they grow a beard during Svira. I don't recognize them at all. I have no idea who they might be. Yeah. And uh, when you consider the fact that Yosef looked exactly like Yaakov, who also had a beard, do you think that'd be something of a tip-off? So somebody explained to me once that there is actually a psychological uh, condition which is called the Clark Kent Syndrome. For those of you who are not familiar, Clark Kent is the alter ego of Kal-El, who comes from the planet Krypton, which never blew up. And uh, his parents sent him to Earth. He became known as Superman. But like every foreigner who comes to America... He wants to fit in. So he gave himself a Goyesha name, Clark Kent, you know, and he dresses so no one should know who he really is. But deep down, he has secret powers that he has to use to save the world. Think about it. His real name was Superman. He wasn't, he was, he was, he was Jewish. Uh, by the way, I, I'm not the only one who says this. There was a book called Up, Up, and Oive which explains the Jewish origins of superheroes. And uh, Superman was developed by two Jews. So there are a lot of Jewish influences. Cal L. I don't know if you hop that. Is that Cal? Anyway, but uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Jewish ideas uh, in, in, in superheroes. The only superhero who I know for sure is actually Jewish is Ben Grimm, who's the thing in the Fantastic Four. I was surprised to find this out. I have a friend of mine who, even though I stopped reading comics about the age of 12, he continues and he fills me in, you know. <laughs> Every now and then he tells me, you know, and this guy died. I said, he died? He says, don't worry, he got better, you know. So, you don't stay dead for long, you know. But uh, Stan Lee, who's also a Jew, he says, I thought it was obvious from the way he talked that he was Jewish. He came from the Lower East Side, from Delancey Street, you know what I mean? And anyway, he gave me a copy of a comic book where Ben Grimm goes back to the old neighborhood and examines his Jewish roots. So uh, deeply moving. In any event, but uh, so uh, the Clark Kent syndrome is, his best friends don't recognize him because he put on a pair of glasses. Now come on. Right? Those of you who wear glasses. Yeah. Probably if you take off your glasses, people can usually identify you, you know. Uh, if you put on a pair of glasses, it's a pretty lame disguise, you know what I mean? Uh, how, does, how does that work? So Terrence says that because the personality of, of Clark Kent is so much different than Superman, people don't expect to find him there. 
And you ever meet somebody that you know in one context and a different context and you, you don't know who they are, even though you know them very well, because you're not supposed to be here. This is a different context, you know? I don't expect to find you here, yeah? So uh, what you're doing there is another question. But anyway, <laughs> somebody told me he was in yeshiva. He says he's sneaking down to a lot. I said, aren't you afraid somebody will catch you? He goes, no, because then they'll have to explain what they were doing down there. You understand? So, anyway, so the clock saying syndrome is because you don't expect to see it. You don't see it. So you're looking at this Russia, Tzafnas Parneach, who's being so nasty. It doesn't occur to me that he could be, um, that he could be Superman. I just don't think that way. So because in their mind, this Tzafnas Parneach couldn't possibly be Yosef, all of the evidence to the contrary is filtered out. In general, we filter out facts that uh, are difficult for us. Most of uh, magic, I don't mean Harry Potter magic, I'm talking about conjuring magic, is based on the fact that people don't notice everything. You filter out whatever you know, doesn't work for you. And that's why a magician always reviews the trick. He says, okay, now you remember, I handed you a deck of cards and you shuffled it. You selected a, a, a card and you put it in the envelope. Is that correct? He says, yes. And I didn't touch anything. He says, that's correct. It's a total lie. It's a total lie. He took the thing, he handed it to him, then he took it back, he took the envelope, he, he was involved the whole time. But when he says it over, that's how you remember it. Yeah. So he takes off his, what? I was a magician. I know of what I speak. You know that trick where you cut a woman in half? I have two half-sisters. Anyway. You, you, this one you know, right? Anyway, ta-da, anyway, <laughs> be that as it may, my friends, yes, I do do children's parties. Anyway, um, uh, Clark Kent's, yeah, so he takes off his mask, and he reveals himself to his brothers, and everybody cries, they cry on each other, and then as he's sending them back, he gives, uh, he gives uh, Binyamin 300 shekels, and the Mepharshim all discuss what those 300 shekels are for. And then he gives everyone a set of clothing. Why? Because when they heard that they were going to go in, that Binyamin was going to be taken away, they all tore Korea. So he felt like he had to give them another outfit back. <clears throat> and he gives Binyamin five outfits. Ask the Gemara Megillah. Yosef, these people killed you over a coat that was worth two sloyim, and you give this guy five outfits and send them back with him? You see, they have a thing when it comes to clothes. You know what I mean? Why would you do that? So he says, because it had nothing to do with who was getting clothes or not. He was Marames that Binyamin, in the future, is going to have a descendant named Mordechai. Oh, Mordechai Yotah and he comes out with five begadim. And Yosef is now being marames to those five begadim that Mordechai is going to come out with at the end of the Purim story. My gosh, once we're giving historical gifts, why stop there? Why don't you give Yehuda a scepter? Why don't you give Zvulun a little boat? You know what I mean? I could give everybody a little gift. You know what I mean? Something. You know, give Levi a spear, you know, come in handy, you know, give, give a dun, a, a jawbone of a donkey, you know what I mean, for Shimshon, you know, hold on to this, you'll see, it'll have meaning later on. Why is the only thing that he wants Marames at this point about Mordechai coming out with the, the Godim from the king? So let's take a step back. Yosef is wearing a disguise, Tzafnas Parneach. He's pretending to be this Egyptian viceroy. He's got the, probably the little pharaoh beard, you know, that they have there. He's got the little headdress with the snake. You know what I mean? He's all set up. He's wearing a costume. Why is he wearing a disguise? He's wearing a disguise because he believes that his brothers need to be taught a lesson. Because their brothers have been very bad. And they... They don't realize it. They think they did everything fine. They thought they wanted to kill their brother. They sold him into slavery. They thought they did a good thing. 
So he has to react to his brothers. Now, his brothers just did their own little costume party, if you think about it. They show up to Yaakov with Yosef's coat torn and bloody and says, Haker no, do you recognize this coat? That was a little costume they made out of that coat. They did a little show. Yeah? Wolchanan Vasman says that nothing ever happens out there unless it starts over here. Anytime you find something out there, this, it's, it's coming from us. What, what do I mean? I'll give you a dramatic illustration. I heard uh, um, Shiva Vishiv Farakaway, uh, Rabbi Pear, on, on a recording once say this. He says, How do you have something called the Holocaust denial? There's so much evidence. And people say it didn't happen. What historical event do people deny ever happened? He said, there can only be Holocaust denial out there if there's Holocaust denial in here. He says, what do you mean? Anytime anyone tries to offer an explanation for the Holocaust, they are uh, roundly criticized. Yeah? Uh, How dare you suggest an answer to the Holocaust? It just happened. You can't say we did anything wrong. You can't say that the Kedoshim did anything wrong. You can't question the morality of the Jews. Anyone who does is just justifying the Germans. Chobim Bayes Rishon, Chazal give a reason. Chobim Bayes Sheni, they give a reason. Full of Beitar, Chazal give a reason. The Crusades, the Rishonim give reasons. Tach v'tat, the Yachronim give reasons. And when it comes to this, you're not even allowed to ask the questions. He says, because we have essentially denied the significance of the Holocaust by refusing to allow anyone to ask the question, then the world out there can deny it ever happened at all. That was Rabbi Pear's suggestion. So Rabbi Khan Vazman says, how do you have something like blood libel? The only religion that forbids the eating of blood and we're the ones who are accused of killing people for their blood. You know? Um, so he says, if it's out there, it had to start with here. And Rebbe Khanan says, if, if I had the, the, the plates, you know, if I had the shoulders to say it, I would say it was because when the Shvatim pretended that the goat blood was human blood, that gave the nations of the world the right to accuse us of using blood. So he says... So it was a little hot cigar that they did over there that had profound influence. Now, why did they do that? They did that because they decided that Yosef was dressing up. Why was he wearing the Ksonos Pasim? It was a symbol that he was the Bechor. Why should he think he's the Bechor? His father was treating him as the Bechor. Because he felt that he wanted to marry Rachel first. That's who he worked for. That's everything that he did. And as far as he's concerned, he was tricked into marrying Leah first. And because he was tricked, he felt that's not legit. And really, I should have married Rachel first. And so therefore, I'm treating Rachel's firstborn as my firstborn. And so I dressed him up in the Ksonis Pasim, which the other Shvatim felt was inappropriate. And that's why they felt like they had to cut it up and cover it in blood. And that's why Yosef had to dress up like Safnas Panech. But how, how did Yaakov get fooled? Because Leah tricked him. Rachel gave him the gave her the bywords and she used them. Now, how does Leia do something like this? There are two opposite approaches in Chazal. One of them is she didn't know. Yaakov shows up and says to Rachel, I'm gonna marry you. He says, My father won't let it. He says, Don't worry, I'm a bigger Ramai than he is. And Rachel says, that's because you don't know my father. Yeah? And he knew already that his father was going to trick him. So he came to, she came to Leah, Rachel, and said, you know, Yaakov wants to marry you. He says, really? He says, yeah. I know you don't go out with the sheep because you're older, but I go out with the sheep and I, I talk to him, I see him. 
Every time Yaakov gave Rachel a gift, she gave it to Leah and said, this is from Yaakov. So right down to the wedding night, when uh, they're going down the chuppah, he says, Yaakov's told me to tell you this secret you know, code so he knows that it's really you, so that dad didn't switch somebody else. And Leah never knew. And even in the morning, she, it says, and Yaakov knew, and he went to Lavan. But it doesn't say he said anything to Leah. So that's one approach. The other approach is dramatically different. Yaakov in the morning finds out that he was tricked and it's really Leah. And he said to her, how could you do something like this? He held Leah responsible. That's a beautiful song by Shweki, you know. Rachel on her wedding day and the veil concealing another gives a secret code and sister's shame yeah so uh, but what about Mama Leia Mama Leia had no problem taking the code <laughs> going down the chuppah playing the whole hot cigar on Yaakov so Yaakov in the morning says how could you do this hey, that's despicable dressing up like your sister and she says to Yaakov, could you imagine that? A sibling dressing up like another sibling. Kind of hard to believe anybody would do that. <laughs> Only thing I could think that would be more outrageous would be if somebody dressed up like their brother to fool their poor blind father. <laughs> and Yaakov was like, uh, whoops. <laughs> He said, let me explain something to you, <laughs> my friend. You bought the birthright. You stole the brachas. Right? Now you're the bachar. Guess what? It's a package. It comes with me. Because I'm supposed to marry the bachar. You're the bachar? Mazel tov. Elowat, you didn't want to be the Bechor when it came to getting married. All of a sudden, now you decided you're the younger brother. It don't work that way. You want to steal the brachas? You want to dress up like your brother? You want to do this whole thing? Then you got to marry me. Wow. Cool, huh? <laughs> so, uh, so Yaakov was duly chastised. Yeah? And that's why Melech HaMashiach comes from Leah. Because that was where it was supposed to come from. Yeah? Now let's go look at that little uncomfortable story over there. Yaakov dresses up like Esav. Why does Yaakov dress up like Esav? Well, Esav was fooling their father. He was convincing their father that he was Roy to be the Bechor, to get the Avoda. Before he would serve his father, he would put on the begodim from Odomarishon that he got from Nimrod. It was passed down from Odom straight down to Noah, down to Shem. Eventually Nimrod stole them. And, and uh, Esav killed them and took those begodim and put those begodim on. Says the Medrash and Beratius Rabbah, you know what those begodim were? They were the begodim of the Kohen Gadol. Now, I, I want to explain just a moment about clothing. Yeah. There are two words for clothing. One is levush, and one is beged. Beged is from the, from the word uh, boged, to be a, a traitor. Levush is from the word embarrassment, busha. Yeah. The fact that we need clothes is a testimony to the fact that we have fallen deeply in our levels and are no longer able to be the tzuris Adam we were supposed to be. So we need clothing in order to be able to recapture those levels that we lost. Um, if I can bring a marshal from sometime before age 12, when I was researching the superhero phenomena um, as part of an ongoing study program. <laughs> because I was always ahead of my years. And I, was, I saw teenagers, you know, preteens, reading this stuff. I wondered why. 
I couldn't lower myself to actually like read Richie Rich or Archie or something like that. But uh, superheroes, there was a lot of scientific information there to be gained and historical insights and stuff. Uh, um, I was surprised that Thor was in fact a member of the event, seeing as how he'd been a Norse god. But okay, this was a cash. But um, but one, there was this group called the Fantastic Four where they all had superpowers. I already mentioned Ben Grimm. And I just remember this one issue. I don't know why I remember this. They lost their powers. And Reed Richards, who's a genius, designed suits that could mimic their powers. So he, for example, could stretch very far. He had these nesting you know, outfit that would stretch so he could reach very far with the outfit and the clothes were there to recreate the powers that they lost. La Havdil. The begodim of the Kohen Gadol is there to give us back the tzura of the, of the shleimus ha'odim that we had in Gan Eden, that we lost. And when we put on these clothing, we, retreat, we, we, we raise ourselves up to what ultimately a person is supposed to look like. And that's why the Greeks, who considered themselves to the, the epitome of Yofi, right, Yephes, the Yofi of Yephes. So Alexander the Great, who was their representative, meets Shimon at Tzadik, the Kohen Gadol, wearing the begotten of the Kohen Gadol, which you're not supposed to wear outside of the base of Mikdash. And when he sees Shimon at Tzadik in the Big Day Kahuna, he gets off and bows down to him because he recognizes that is the true Tzuras Adam. That is the challenge that a person who's really there. Who was that? That was Yaakov. Yaakov Ish Tom. Yaakov, who the Chazal tell us, his picture is engraved on the side of the Kisei HaKavod. He is the Adam HaSholem. It says, the Malochim Olim V'yoridim. Why? Because they were with Yaakov, they went up to Shemayim to the Kisei HaKavod, and they saw Yaakov there. So they said, we went the wrong way, and they went back down. Yeah? They saw Yaakov everywhere. Yeah, he is the Tzuras Adam. He is the person, the, the true essence of what a human being is supposed to be, the way God created him. The clothes help the Kohen Gadol recreate that image. That's Yaakov. What does Esav do? He takes those begodim and goes into his father. So Yaakov who's supposed to be the Kohen Gadol, Esav is dressing up like Yaakov. He's the one doing the costume party. So Yaakov has to dress up like Esav, dressing up like Yaakov, just to be himself. When he put back on the clothes, it was so that his father could see who he really was and not Esav pretending to be who he was. So because Yaakov was dressing, because Esau was dressing up like Yaakov, Yaakov had to dress up like Esau. And because Yaakov had to dress up like Esau, that's why Leah had to dress up like Rachel. And because Leah dressed up like Rachel, that's why Yaakov dressed up Yosef as the Bechor. And because of that, that's why the brothers had to dress up the Ksodas Pasim as if it had been killed by an animal. And that's why Yosef has to dress up at Safnas Parneach, Chad Gad Chad Gad Even though that is funny, the fact is, if you take a look at the Gra on Chad Gad the Gedi is the Gedi that they killed at Machiris Yosef. All of Chad Gad is about Machiris Yosef, and it ends with Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David. That's how it goes at the end. Yeah? So. It's uh, the Shochet who kills the ox, which is Edom. That's Mashiach ben Yosef. So the, the, the story is, is one of profound importance. And now when Yosef pulls off his mask and all the masks come off, he gives five begadim to Mordechai and says, this was nothing. This wasn't such a great costume party. Because this was us all dressing up. There's going to be a much better costume party. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to dress up. Hastia Astia Panai. He's going to put on a mask. 
to the point that the Jews in Bavel will go to uh, Yecheskel Anavi and say, oh, we still mechuyiv to keep Torah and mitzvahs. God has divorced us, exiled us, destroyed our home. If a woman is divorced, do you still have to keep uh, listening to your husband? Of course not. It's over. God was so hidden from them at that point that the name of God does not even appear in the Megillah. Open parentheses. When a person is learning Safras, the first thing they give him to write is in Megillah's Esther because God's name isn't in it. It's the only one that doesn't have God's name in it. So that's why we let him practice on that without messing up God's name. That's why you find so many Megillah's Esthers for sale because <laughs> that was the first thing they wrote. But uh, unless Sefer Torahs, surprisingly. Anyway, but um, uh, there's, there's a costume party coming up. And the Jews come into the costume party and they don't understand what's happening. Mordechai says, don't go to the party. And they say, we have to go to the party. You don't understand. You don't understand, they say to Mordechai. You, al nice guy, but you don't get it. We get it. And they go to the party. One of the psukim that we read with the Eichanigan, because they use the kalim from the Beis HaMikdash. And Achashverosh comes out dressed in the begodim of the Kohen Gadol. Because not only have we destroyed your Beis HaMikdash, but we are you. And we have taken on the the guise of the Kohen Gadol, and we've become the Kohen Gadol, and we're the real Tzuris Adam. And the Jews had a little costume party there. They pretended to eat and drink, but they didn't. They pretended. But they went to the party, the Caleb of the Beis Mikdash, and Achashverosh and the Kohen Gadol clothing. <clears throat> and so HaKadosh Baruch Hu raises up Haman, And he gets, Baruch Hashem, no one had one of those big rockets. Anyway, and he gets the power, and he says that Mordechai is going to be hanged on a giant gallows. And the people are sure that they're finished, but they know that Esther's really a Jew. And what does Esther do? She invites Haman to a private party. And they say, we've lost Esther. We've lost Mordechai. We're completely alone. And we cry out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who we already decided abandoned us and doesn't, isn't there for us anymore. But when you're in trouble, those kind of technicalities don't get in the way. And we cry out and we say, Tata, Tata, where are you? Why are you hiding from us? And we eventually see we didn't understand what was going on the whole time. Haman gets hanged on the gallows. And he comes dressed out with the begadim of Malchus, which are similar, as the Mepharshim explained, to the begadim of the Kohen Gadol. And he comes out, and suddenly they say, we didn't understand what was going on. There were masks. Everything was hidden from us. We didn't see what was really there. And at that point, all the masks come off. We have a long story to go until the story is over. But we know that Akash Baruch Hu is always there. As the little girl in Auschwitz who wrote a poem that was found later says, I believe in the sun even when I don't see it shining. And I believe in God even when his goodness is hidden from us. It's not easy when things are going wrong to see a Kurdish Baruch. I, uh, I have an exercise I give people. Because we always talk about L'sanik al-Hashem, 
and this is what the purpose of life is, and they get close to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and we talk about all these things. Now, people say to me, "How do you do it practically?" So there's an exercise that I don't usually give out publicly, but I'll share it with you now. Try talking to God. So people say, I daven. I said, I didn't say daven. Daven is a form of avoda. Yeah? Do you ever wonder what the word daven means? Somebody told me it's Aramaic de'avin from the fathers. I don't know. It's what someone told me. What do you think? I'm Pesach Krohn. I checked this stuff out. You know? <laughs> and I heard an unbelievable thing and I called 16 people and I found, them, and I found the original manuscript that was written in Aramaic. You know? I have no idea. I heard it. It sounds cool. I know. Gosh. I do a trip to Europe uh, Thanksgiving. Usually Thanksgiving. One couple years ago, you know, uh, Hanukkah came out on Thanksgiving. Remember the year before, I said, what are we going to do? He said, we'll go to Greece. <laughs> but um, we ended up doing that the next year. But uh, usually it's Thanksgiving weekend. And, uh, you know, when the person first asked me to go, Rabbi Fried, you know, receive his tours. So I said, listen, I'm not a historian like Rabbi Wine. I don't do all this research like Rabbi Crone. And I don't intend to. So I'll basically come and, you know, give my regular shiurim. I don't know why you want to bring me along. And they said, well, we feel you. if people see your picture, they know they're going to have a good time. <laughs> I said, that much I can do. <laughs> so Baron comes along. He's the historical you know, expert, and he gives all of the, you know, does all the research and all those kind of things, etc. You know? But no one expects that of me. So, uh, I, so I can't tell you if it's really true. That's what I heard, Davin. Anyway, so when we daven, that's a voda. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, talk to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This sounds a little scary. As if he really exists. You know, a, that's a hard phrase, but a true one. As more than one from person has said to me, I know there's a God, I just don't believe it. What does that mean? That means if you picture for a moment that you daven, Baruch Atah and there he is. You'd be like, oh my God, I mean, that's you. <laughs> yeah, who'd you think you were talking to? Nobody. Come on, let's be honest. Would you ever speak Lashon Hara if you really believed God was there with you right now? You could see him sitting there. And you say, oh, I heard the most amazing thing about Shani, you know. And God goes... <laughs> My tone over this way, I said, God goes... Mustam, <laughs> he's Israeli. Anyway. <laughs> if he's uh, from the last generation. No! No! So I don't think anybody would go and turn to God and go, yeah, hold on, just hold that thought because I just want to finish the story. You know what I mean? Like, if you really knew God was there. So we know that God exists intellectually. But to feel it? So try talking to him. Now, this is not easy. How do I know this is not easy? Because I know there are people who are incapable of leaving messages on an answering machine. <laughs> Hi, this is so. Beep. <laughs> It's just too much. It's too much, too challenging. Now, you don't even know what that means because, you know, you were, all were born in the era of the cell phone, so you don't even understand what it means. When I went to Eretzel, um, Bezek had a five-year waiting list to get a phone. And if you wanted to call America on your phone, it cost like $20 a minute. You could go down to the post office and get special asimonin and keep putting in the phone there, you know, to keep calling. It was a very difficult, involved thing to call. So instead you wrote letters. At least the people with more disposable income wrote letters because you had to pay for a stamp. Well, most of us wrote aerograms, which was a piece of tissue paper. And you wrote on it, and then you folded it over, and you tried to lick the adhesive as much as you could, and you dropped it in a mailbox. It took two weeks to get there, two weeks for you to get an answer. You have no idea what you said or what you, you know. <laughs> you don't remember what it was about. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was a wrote a letter. But if you had a really, really good friend, you'd make him a tape. Um, before there were downloads, there were CDs. Before there were CDs, there were cassettes. You'd put a cassette in the tape recorder and you'd start to talk to your good friend who you're making an actual tape. It's uh, 8 o'clock and uh, it's been a storm and we just had supper and uh, I wanted to make you a tape 
Um, you know, just fill you in what's going on and stuff. It's 801. <laughs> and, you know, we learned today, uh, basically what we do every day uh, in yeshiva. It's almost 802. <laughs> now, I, I'll, I'll get back to you, you know. It could take people months to do this because I'm talking to nobody, right? Which is hard for you to do until you have children. <laughs> then you master the art form. <laughs> then you know what it's like to talk to somebody. <laughs> Can I go? Are you done? <laughs> so, uh, that's why I, nine out of ten times I don't say anything. What's the point? You know, so. I say it to myself. Anyway, but uh, sometimes I, it doesn't even help. I walk into a room and one of my girls goes, What? I said, I didn't say, say anything. I saw you looking. And I walk around like this. Anyway, but, um, you know, talk to Kaddish Baruch Hu. So, uh, anyway, God, I'll tell you what I went through today and how I'm feeling and stuff. It's hard. It's hard. You feel a little silly. Now, if you do this long enough, you will sense, you will sense that somebody's listening. You know, sometimes you can talk to somebody on the phone and even though you don't hear them breathing, you know they're listening. Or you could be talking to somebody. It's called active listening. You know the person's listening to you. You know? There's some people who are terribly insecure. It's very hard to have a conversation with these people. Anyway, so I... Um, so today... Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Anyway, so today I was going down uh, to the library. Hello? Yeah, yeah, I'm there. I'm there. Okay. So I was going to the library. I was going to take out a couple of books on, you know, for my term. Hello? I'm not, people do this every single Friday. I'm, like, I'm here. I'm here. Don't worry. I'm here. A lot of people must hang up on this person. The only thing I can imagine. You know? But after a while, you'll talk to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and you'll sense that somebody's listening. And if you keep it up, eventually you'll get an answer. Now, if you actually hear a voice, there's something seriously wrong with you and you should <laughs> seek out the help of a professional. I don't mean like that. I'm saying that it, you will start to see things in your life that is just too obvious. It can't go... My sister-in-law told me the following story. She um, couldn't find her car keys. So, you know, you take a deep breath and you check everywhere. You look in this, you look in the jacket pocket, you look here, you look at that. They're not there. So then you engage in a futile temper tantrum. I can't believe it. Oh, my car keys. You calm down. He said, let me check again. Check everything again, but much more carefully this time. It's not there. Anyway, she threw in another step. She said, okay, God, you're trying to teach me something. I'm pretty sure what you're trying to teach me is that I am not in control. So I'm going to look one last time. If I don't find my car keys, then you obviously don't want me to go. If I do find the car keys, then you know that I got the right message and that you run the world and not me. And she goes back in and opens one of the drawers that she looked at both times, and there were the car keys. Yeah. They're right there. There was one time I was late for a speech, and, uh, and it was in Yerushalayim. And I said, God, I don't ask for a lot, but I got to make this class, so you got to help me. So help me. Every light turned green as I pulled up to it. This had never happened to me before. And I just, like, I made it in record, and as it was going on, I was like, I don't believe this. Like, this is, this, this is the stuff of miracles. You know what I mean? I'm zoom, 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 right there. I don't know why I was so surprised, because I asked him to help me. <laughs> I know he could do anything. That's one of the you know, benefits of being all-powerful, you know? So uh, I'm sure he could arrange something like that, but he had never done it before, you know? There are other times that I make every single light, you know? There are other times that things don't go my way, you know? And, 
uh, you know, you start to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu in your life. And then, as the Pesach in Shir Hashirim says, you can see him peeking through the fence. Because you know that he's right there with you and he's taking care of you. And I may not always understand events as they are taking place. And I just say, he's got a good track record. I'm, I'm sure I told this story over, but it's just one of the most inspirational and helpful things I have ever heard in my life. I was going through a difficult time. And I had a Hasidish friend, and he sees me. And he tells me a Hasidish Maisa. Rebbe Yitzhak Badichev was walking with his Hasidim, and he stops. And he says, if I was a Kurdish Baruch Hu, you know what I would do right now? The Hasidim said, what? Said, Just what he's doing now. Well, you think I'm smarter than him? <laughs> and suddenly it hit me. Right. I think I'm smarter than him. I could definitely run the world better. You know? A Kurdish Baruch Hu knows what he's doing. And the more I think about that story and the more I try to integrate it, I always say, I wouldn't want to be God. I couldn't take the hours. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is definitely not for me. You know? <laughs> but Akash Baruch Hu has your back. He's watching now for you. He's seeing that things go. The masks come off. Purim is not much of a ge'ula. When the story opens, the evil king Achashverosh is in charge, the Jews are in Gullus, and the base of Migdash is destroyed. And when the story ends, the evil king Achashverosh is in charge, the Jews are in Gullus, and the base of Migdash is still destroyed. But we saw HaKadosh Baruch Hu behind the mask. We saw him peeking through the cracks. We understood that the mask comes off. And when the mask comes off and everyone gets to see Hashem for real, Thank you all for coming and a Freilichen Purim Gadol.